I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Previously on The Zuring System. After the murders of Nancy and Derek Haysom, Jens Zuring and Elizabeth Haysom flee the country. They are on the run for months until they're arrested in London. During questioning in June 1986, Zuring confesses to the crime. The couple is extradited separately to the U.S. to stand trial. During her trial, Elizabeth Haysom claims that Jens Zuring committed the murders after she put him up to it. But in 1990, Four years after his initial confession, Zuring changes his story. He denies committing the murders and maintains his innocence, claiming that he lied and took responsibility for the murders out of love for his girlfriend. Since then, Zuring has blamed Haysom for the fact that he spent 33 years behind bars. The Zuring System a podcast series from CCC Cinema and Television and Argon Lab, 2022. Please note, this podcast contains graphic descriptions of physical and sexual violence that are not suitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 3 of 8, A Toxic Relationship. The Initial Meeting. Jens Zuring and Elizabeth Haysom meet for the first time in August 1984. At this time, Zuring is only 18 years old. Haysom is 20. Both are first-year students at the University of Virginia, a renowned university that was founded in 1819. It is located in Charlottesville, Virginia, a city of 50,000 people that grows to 70,000 during the school year, and that is known for its high quality of life. Zuring and Haysom both receive prestigious merit-based scholarships. On campus, they live in the same dorm and meet for the first time at an orientation event. Yet Zuring's stories shape the way that Elizabeth Haysom is perceived by the public, often in extremely negative ways. In his book, Nichtschuldig, which translates to not guilty in English, and which was published in Germany in 2012, he describes her as a femme fatale whom no one was able to resist. 
We were guided by the moon and the stars, and by Liz's soft British accent, which charmed us like the Pied Piper of Hamlin. The higher we climbed, the deeper we wandered into the dark forest, the more we felt privileged in some strange way to be around Elizabeth, far away from the others who stayed below. In letters and books, Zuring repeatedly describes his 18-year-old self as naive, ignorant, arrogant, and sexually inexperienced. He rarely drinks alcohol and has never taken drugs. An image of self that he refers to within the trial of 1990. I mean, Elizabeth had had a very interesting life. Um, so, I mean, that's something she shared with me, I guess. We lived all over the world, but she had also done, done things, okay, um, which I hadn't at uh, 18. She run away to Europe for six months and had all sorts of adventures. And, um, you know, she just had lots of fascinating stories to tell. And, I mean, other people were fascinated by her in that way as well. You know, striking person. Things turn toxic. Zuring is born in Bangkok in 1966. His father, a German diplomat, works there at the time. When he is seven years old, his family moves back to Germany. They live in Bonn for a few years until his father is transferred again, this time to the U.S. Zuring attends high school in Atlanta, Georgia. According to him, some of the students at his high school call him a Nazi due to the fact that he is German. He writes for the school newspaper and is a member of a theater troupe. In his book, Not Guilty, he describes himself as an outsider. Elizabeth Haysom is a Canadian citizen. She is born in 1964 in Zimbabwe, where her father, Derek Haysom, runs a steel company. Her family is upper class. Growing up, Elizabeth attends Swiss boarding schools. She writes plays, plays hockey, goes skiing, and plays several instruments. Zuring and Haysom have a lot in common. Both had somewhat difficult childhoods in which they moved around a lot. In court, both attest to the fact that they had a contentious relationship with their parents. In his books, Zuring describes his mother as an alcoholic and claims that his parents often fought. Haysom also seems to have had a strained relationship to her family. The two of them express their feelings for one another in emotional love letters. Zuring writes the following in a letter to Haysom during winter break 1984, which he spends with his parents. This vacation has been really awful to me. And what has gotten me through this vacation is me. A troubled and pained part of this troubled and pained family. And one who feels... who feels himself loved. By you. And loves you fiercely. And gets his strength from that love. I do love you. I do love you more than I've loved anybody. And I love you differently than I've loved anybody before. More later. I do find you in every aspect more desirable than I've ever found anybody, and that I can find anybody or anything to be. Hasem's response. I love you. I love you now. I love you eternally. You will always be the most important person in my life. You will always be a major player in my life. Others may interest me for a short while, but you interest me for a universal period. 
But from the beginning, their relationship is characterized by toxic dynamics on both sides. Haysom writes in one of her letters to Zuring over Christmas break 1984, Did you know I spoke to Christine about marrying you? She felt it wouldn't work out. She believed that you might become jealous of any success I had. I knew exactly what she meant. However, I would always step down for you. Please, my darling Jens, never let the pursuit of excellence tear us apart. Rather, let us pull us closer. When it comes to Haysom, Soaring claims to suffer from an inferiority complex, which becomes apparent in another letter that he writes to her in the winter of 1984. All I can do is bullshit people, which is basically lying. And apparently I lie so naturally and so well by now that I even got Elizabeth believing I'm worthwhile. But I'm not, because I can show nothing. I'm even fucked up inside, and really fucked up too. They used to lock people like me up, or burn people like me at the stake. Wait, that's bullshit again, because they only killed or locked up the ones that were actually dangerous. But Elizabeth Haysom also struggles with confidence. Her letters to Zuring demonstrate a complicated relationship with love and sexuality. In an undated letter to him, which she likely wrote in the period between October 1984 and March 1985, and which will later be quoted in court, she describes her pattern of relationships with men as follows. I began to understand. I had always believed that I made men fall in love with me so I could screw them physically and emotionally and take out all the hatred I felt for them by humiliating them. I despised their cheap lust and easy passions. And in the end, I made them hate themselves for loving me. In the same letter to Zuring, she also talks about her fear of intimacy. Love has always been forbidden to me. Not for Daisy's whisper I had cared for someone. They passed through my life if I enjoyed them, and when they bored me, I abandoned them. Yes, I've been very cruel. I reveled in being a stone. No one affected my life very much. I hated my love for you for a long time. I hated myself for discovering vulnerability. For ten years, I've been despising myself and you changed that. You cared without lust. In his book Not Guilty, Zuring repeatedly claims that he and Haysom were having wild sex. During her trial, Haysom claims that they first had sex after her parents were murdered, specifically on the day of the funeral. Furthermore, she says that this encounter was not consensual. While most of the trial had been aired on TV at the time, for unknown reasons at this point, the broadcast was interrupted, hence the voicing of the trial transcript. I was in a separate room in a single bed sharing that room with my roommate. Jens came to me and he said that he needed me, that he was lonely, he was scared, and I went with him. At this time I was on prescription sedatives and tranquilizers, and I went with him, and up until this time he had been completely and totally impotent, and I got into bed with him, and I went to sleep, and I woke up, sir, and yes, he was making love to me. Making love to you? Well, for want of a better term. What are you saying? He raped you? No, 
sir, because I didn't struggle. Possible motives for the murders. There are a number of possible motives that could have pushed the pair to plan and execute the murder of the Haysoms. These are also discussed in court. Possible motive one, abuse. In Not Guilty, Zuring writes that Haysom told him that she had been raped as a student at Swiss boarding school. Afterwards, her mother did not try to protect her daughter or investigate the incident, but rather began sexually abusing her herself. Her father had been no help. He simply ignored his wife's actions. Elizabeth Haysom has made contradictory statements on the matter. In her confession from 1986 and in her trial in Virginia in 1987, she denies being sexually abused. Your mother's been butchered? Yes, she has, sir. During previous testimony yesterday, you called her a liar and an alcoholic. I did not Was call her an alcoholic. Was she a sexual abuser? Did she sexually abuse you? If she didn't, for God's sake, clear her name now. She did not sexually abuse me. Thank you. However, in interviews with journalists after her sentencing, she repeats the sexual abuse allegations against her parents. Was Haysom somehow pressured to clear her mother's name? Possible motive two, psychological projection onto the parents. In Haysom's letters to Zuring, and based on her testimony in court, it appears that she no longer wants to live up to her parents' expectations. She claims that her parents control and stifle her, paying little attention to what she wants for herself. In her letter to Zuring on March 8, 1985, Haysom writes, I have very wealthy parents who won't give me a dime unless I act out their fantasies. And for a while I believed they would sincerely give me the money when I reformed. Until I finish my education, it's just another pretense. After that will be another class, until I have an acceptable husband or a president or something. I am not prepared to act out any longer. Scotland Yard detective Terry Wright speaks to Haysom about her relationship with her parents in 1986. His impression is that she has very little freedom to make her own decisions. One of the, some of the things that became clear to me was that I thought that Elizabeth Haysom, at a time perhaps when she really needed to be with her mum and dad, was sent off to a boarding school. She was quite young at the time, and there were times where she was... Forced is probably too strong a word, but she she was guided into studying subjects that she wasn't any good at and that the subjects that she really wanted to do, her parents didn't want her to do. And I think there was some resentment there. But I think in the end, I think she was probably lonely. Haysom cannot deny that she holds something of a grudge against her parents. In her letters to Zuring, she discusses it openly. Would it be possible to hypnotize my parents, do voodoo on them, Will them to death? It seems my concentration on their death is causing them problems. My father nearly drove over a cliff at lunch. He nearly got squashed by a tree when he got home and he keeps falling over. And my mother, drunk, fell into the fire. I think I should seriously take up like magic. Apparently, these dark thoughts find fertile ground with Zuring. I have not explored the side of me that wishes to crush to any real extent. I have yet to kill possibly the ultimate act of crushing, 
with the possible exception of sex, which, to all of Freud's detractors to the contrary, I feel is somehow centrally connected with this death side, even if only because it perpetuates physical existence, at least sometimes, and hence the pain. But what I really only know is the death side. I felt that in its many forms inside me. It's what I can believe to be real. Terry Wright calls this letter the psycho letter. In it, Zuring stylizes himself as a violent Christ-like figure, responding to Hasem's remarks regarding her parents. By the way, were I to meet your parents, I have the ultimate weapon. Strange things are happening within me. I'm turning more and more into a Christ figure. A small imitation, anyway, I think. I believe I would either make them completely lose their wits, get heart attacks, or they would become lovers in an agape kind of way of the rest of the world. Zuring also projects his violent fantasies onto Hasem's father. For what I do see inside me is just that. I see it in me and in others and in those color experiences I keep having. But I don't see it clearly, and I want to. This that carries with it some powers, depending on his mental and emotional flexibility. Your father, for example, could quite well die from a confrontation with it if he's too entrenched in hate. Or he could do something silly, like trying to give me all his dough. In his letters, Zuring repeatedly refers to the Hasem's wealth and the possibility of obtaining a portion of it. The Hasem's are, after all, a wealthy family. Possible motive three, money. In addition to hatred and hostility, financial interests may also have played a decisive role in the murders. The fact that money is an issue between Elizabeth Hasem and Jens Zuring can be deduced from a letter she writes to Zuring just a few days before the murders. Never, ever again demand money from me. To say to me I want 200 out of you tomorrow morning is to behave like a bastard. Also, don't you ever assume verbally to me anyway that half of my father's estate is yours. If you're so caught up in making money out of my family, you better reconsider. Please, my darling Jens, try and understand. I don't want your sacrifice to be a burden to either of us, and nor do I want for our love to slip away. Greed is a classic motive for murder. This thought occurs to Scotland Yard detective Terry Wright as he reads Zuring and Hasem's letters. But at the same time, they thought they would keep the inheritance that, that would come their way. As it turned out, there wasn't a lot. But it was quite clear from the letters that they, Elizabeth and uh, Jans both thought that there was going to be quite a substantial inheritance. So you asked me earlier about motives. Uh, and I think in... Zuring's mind, I think money also had something to do with it. But I, can't, I can only offer that as an opinion. I can't really say one way or the other. But there are references to money. And, of course, there is an allegation made by Elizabeth in the American interviews in 1987. She says that Jans sent her a letter where he demanded a payment for having killed her parents. Of course, he denies that. 
The idea of cashing in on the story of the murders is one that Suring has on numerous occasions. In 1986, while imprisoned in the UK, where he has offered a detailed confession over the course of several days, Zuring comes to the conclusion that this story could have some entertainment value. He writes a letter to Terry Wright. Shortly after, Jan Zuring was sent back into the custody of the prison service, which was on the 9th of June, 1986. Uh, He wrote a letter to me, which I found very interesting. In the letter, he wanted me to send some property that he thinks he'd left at Richmond Police Station, some of it to Elizabeth and some to himself. And it was simple things like um, food and um, letters and um, a travel alarm clock and, you know, simple items that that he'd obviously had with him while he was in custody and must have left at, at the police station, I don't know. However, the most interesting part of the letter comes at the end. But there was a postscript to the letter which I found particularly interesting because what he wanted to do was he wanted me to send him a copy of the diary that I'd found, which was a joint diary between Elizabeth and himself. And the reason he wanted to send him a copy of that letter is because he wanted to write the story so that he could sell it. And he actually said that he wanted that he was thinking in commercial terms and there might be millions of readers or viewers who would basically pay to to, um, hear or see this story. So it's interesting on two, on two um, levels to me. Um, the first level is that, first of all, he, he wanted to sell that story just days after he confessed. He was already thinking of making a profit out of what he'd done. But on the second level, the story that he wanted to tell in June of 1986 was that he had actually murdered Nancy and Derek Hayson. It wasn't a story about uh, false confessions and things like that. That came later. The story he wanted to tell was that he actually did the murders. Possible motive four, rivalry. In her letters to Zuring, Elizabeth repeatedly expresses her growing hatred towards her parents. She also talks about a future with him, one without the parents she despises so much. The idea of murder starts to crystallize over time, like in this quote from Elizabeth's letter to Zuring from December 22, 1984. I told my parents I was going to marry you. My parents are going mad. We can either wait till we graduate and then leave them behind, or we can get rid of them soon. Why don't my parents just lie down and die? I despise them so much. During her interrogation in London, Haysom explains that although her parents disapprove of her relationship with Zuring, they don't try to stop it. This is a revoicing of the transcript. They thought that he was too young for me. They thought that he was too possessive of me and that he took up too much of my time. But at the same time, they admired his qualities. He had this fantastic brain, and they knew that I enjoyed companionship with somebody other than Americans. They were a little bit nervous at the thought that I was so keen on Jens, but they didn't particularly dislike him. I mean, they took us out frequently. Well, not frequently, but you know, several times. In her testimony in court, Elizabeth Hasem repeatedly states that the mutual dislike between her parents and Jens Zuring was much stronger on Zuring's side. 
Zuring describes violent fantasies involving her parents. This is Prosecutor Jim Updike interrogating Elizabeth Haysom on trial. I believe sometime at the end of February or middle of February, Jens met my parents. Um, Where was that and how did that come about? That was at Charlottesville. Uh, we had lunch together at um, McAdoo's on the corner in Charlottesville. And um, it, it was uneventful. Sometime shortly after that, um, Jens and I had a scene. Um, he came into my, he barged into my room at UVA and said that he wanted to blow their heads off. Blow their heads off? Yes, referring to my parents. Elizabeth Haysom spends the weekend before the murders at her parents' house. It's her father's birthday. According to Haysom's statement at Zuring's trial, her relationship with her parents improves during this weekend. They approve of her plans for the future. Haysom returns to the dorms, overjoyed. Zuring, however, is not happy about this development. I can't remember if he's, I mean, he certainly was unhappy with the fact that the weekend went so well. He was very unhappy with, I was a little less reliant um, we had been very, very dependent upon one another. I was certainly extremely dependent on him, but I was more dependent on my parents. And it had, I guess it became obvious over that weekend that um, my parents and I had made a pact again and I was drawing closer to them and um, less, less likely to be so dependent on Yen. The letters as evidence. Haysom and Zuring's letters and diary entries play a major role in their arrests and also later during their respective trials. The letters justify the suspicions that the two of them planned to murder her parents. Nevertheless, they are only circumstantial evidence, not proof. At her trial in 1987, Elizabeth Haysom is questioned about the letters. She is aware of her role in instigating Zuring to commit the murders. However, she emphasizes the fact that he acted of his own free will. I wanted my parents out of my life. I had this immature, ridiculous fantasy of them being dead, not murdered, not in actuality, not in reality. My, my letters, my writings, they are all of a very surreal and fantastic nature. It was in my head, and Jens made it a reality. What I want you to understand is I do not mean to minimize my guilt. What I did, what I said, what I failed to do, my, my irresponsibility, my, my manipulation of Jens. Yes, I am totally guilty. I'm totally responsible for my parents' death. I accept that. But what I want you to realize is that Jens acted of his own free will. He had a choice. He had a choice. He had a four-hour drive. No matter what I said to him before that, no matter what I had written to him in months before that, he had a choice whether he killed my parents or not. 
Zuring, on the other hand, tries repeatedly to play down the significance of the letters. At his trial in 1990, Zuring says that their correspondence was merely a writing exercise for a possible novel or screenplay. Furthermore, he claims that his notes should be seen as a kind of therapeutic self-talk. The Weekend in Washington. One murder, two versions. The letters and the so-called diary give the investigators an indication of what happened on March 30, 1985. They confront the couple with these details. As a result, Zuring confesses to murdering his girlfriend's parents during an interrogation in London. Initially, Elizabeth Haysom sticks with the version that both of them were in Washington, D.C. for the entire weekend. This is the story that she and Zuring had agreed upon after the deaths of her parents. However, once Zuring confesses, she changes her story. Terry Wright. What she said this time was, I stayed in Washington and Jan Zuring went away to meet some friends. He took the rental car and went away to meet some friends, but I don't know what he was doing. And she maintained that for quite a long, a long time during the interview until it was obvious that we didn't believe her and that her story made no sense. And then she changed her mind and actually said exactly what the same as uh, Jan Suring had said. During the interrogations in London in 1986, Haysom says Zuring bought a butterfly knife that morning. In the evening, he drove to her parents' house in Lynchburg while she stayed in Washington, D.C., Zuring told her she should order room service for two at the hotel and then go to the movies where she should buy two tickets for each movie. It needed to look like they had spent the entire evening together. This is Kenneth Beaver interrogating Haysom in London. Due to the tape degradation, we read from the original transcripts. Come on, Elizabeth. Come on, you told me you were going to tell me the truth. Tell me why you created the alibi in the first place. Because he was going to confront my parents. Yes, for what? Their attitude towards me. Yes. And Jens. Yes, it's got a ring of truth to it now. I've already spoken to Jens. Carry on. He went down there with a knife with the possibility of killing them. And you knew that, didn't you? Yes, I did. In the recordings, we hear Haysom tell the detectives that she and Zuring had started planning the murders around a month earlier. However, she claimed she didn't actually believe that Zuring would murder her parents. She didn't think he was capable of murder and felt certain it would remain an imaginary game. When Zuring returns from Lynchburg, she is waiting for him in front of the movie theater. Zuring drives up with the rental car and Haysom gets in. Terry Wright recalls how Haysom describes this moment to the detectives during questioning. When he turned up, uh, he was coming from the opposite direction in the street than she expected. So she crossed the road, and as she opened the car door, the, the interior light came on, and she said that she saw him and a sheet that was covered in blood. And um, she, was, she said that she was shocked Haysom then tells Wright and his partner what happened next. As they drive back to the hotel together, Zuring tells her that he murdered her parents. Haysom gives him her coat so that he can enter the hotel unnoticed. They take the elevator up to their room together. 
Then Hasem goes back down to clean up the car. And um, he showered and then went to sleep. So she said that when she went back upstairs and got into bed, that she actually couldn't sleep all night long because she was so worried. Worried because her mum and dad had been killed, but also she was worried because she was lying next to the person that had killed them. This version of events corresponds to what Zuring tells the detectives when they question him in London in 1986. However, starting 1990, Zuring begins claiming that his confession was a lie. Since then, he has completely changed his version of that weekend's events. In court in 1990, Zuring testifies that he and Hasem drove to Washington, D.C. together on March 29, 1985. Hasem rented a gray Chevrolet for the trip. The couple wanted to spend the weekend, just the two of them. Zuring testifies in court that Hasem left Washington, D.C. on the afternoon of March 30th under the pretext that she had to pick up a package somewhere for her drug dealer. She tells Zuring to stay in D.C. and establish an alibi for her so her parents won't find out about her drug use. According to Zuring, the drug dealer's name is Jim F., a friend of Elizabeth's that she had gone to high school with. Zuring is the only person who has ever described Jim F. as a drug dealer. The only reference to drugs comes from a letter Hasem wrote to Zuring in which she mentioned that she smoked a joint with Jim F., Zuring also claims that on the evening of March 30th, he does everything they discussed. Hasem returns to the hotel in the middle of the night. Well, she started talking almost, you know, as she came in, um, very monotone, uh, you know, not a lot of, I guess you'd say, emotion, but like she was in shock and um, basically kept repeating the same things over and over again. Uh, I've killed my parents, I've killed my parents. Um, you know, it wasn't her that did it, it was the drugs that made her do it, okay? She said that a lot, you know, it wasn't me, it was the drugs that made me do it. And uh, that her parents deserved it anyway. And, um, you know, you've got to help me. If you don't help me, they'll kill me. And I mean, I, I knew what she meant by that. Um, okay. Execution. In Zuring's version, he decides to take the blame for the murders in order to save Hasem from the electric chair. He assumes that he will have immunity as the son of a diplomat. This is the version of the events that Zuring has described in his books and in interviews since 1990, and it is also the story he has his supporters tell. There is some evidence that at least one of the two spent the evening of March 30, 1985 in Washington, D.C. The two movie tickets, for movies at 10.15 p.m. and midnight, and a receipt for room service that was paid for with Zuring's father's credit card. Furthermore, a call was made during the night from the hotel room to the dorms at the University of Virginia. Can this evidence tell us who spent the evening in the hotel and who traveled to Lynchburg? Either one of the two could have bought the movie tickets or even have fished them out of the trash in front of the movie theater. The room service order is placed under the name Zuring, and either one could have signed for it. Unfortunately, based on the evidence, it's impossible to say who really stayed at the hotel in Washington, D.C., and who committed the murders. However, one fact casts doubt on Zuring's alibi. 
The movie tickets and the room service receipt are not introduced by Zuring's attorney, Richard Neaton, until 1990, while the trial is already underway. Prosecutor Jim Updike finds this strange for several reasons. I don't understand why a man keeps tickets to a movie for better than five years. Can you explain that to me? I didn't. It doesn't mean anything. I didn't. Actually, we left them behind in, uh, in Charlottesville. They were forgotten. That's where my father found them. I didn't keep them. He found them in December, so at least in October he still had them. That's right. Your father turned them over to your attorney in December of 85. Right. And the first that anybody other than you and your lawyers had seen in these tickets, the ribbons, was the death. That's right. And you claim that these tickets are an alibi for you, or excuse me, establish your innocence. That's correct, yes. I have a little difficulty understanding. Perhaps you can help me, Mr. Soren. If you've got evidence that you feel will establish your innocence, why are you sitting in jail over there for such a long period of time since April of 1986, holding and having control over evidence that you feel will establish your innocence? Zuring gets further entangled in these contradictions. Allegedly, he has no knowledge of the tickets. However, the jury is not convinced by Zuring's explanation of the sudden appearance of the movie tickets. They don't believe his version. For Terry Wright, there is plenty to indicate that the original version of the events in which Zuring commits the murders while Haysom stays in D.C. is the real story. Haysom said that she couldn't remember her PIN number for her credit card or her bank card. So she phoned back to University of Virginia to try and speak to her friend to get her PIN number from her room. Now, there is a telephone call shown on the hotel bill, but also you can see Elizabeth's handwriting on that scrap of paper where she's, she's written a number and crossed it out, then written another number, and she's trying to remember her PIN. Either one or the other went to, uh, stayed in Washington, the other went to the Haysom's house, or there had to be somebody else involved because somebody was in Washington doing the alibi and making the phone call from the hotel. So there's never been any suggestion of anybody else's involvement whatsoever, apart from Jan Suring says that because uh, because Haysom is small in stature, she must have had somebody with her helping her. But nobody, there's never been any evidence to suggest uh, anybody else's involvement at all. and. I have thought a lot about whether they both went there. And as I said before, the, the alibi documents, I think, proves that she stayed, or tend to prove that she stayed in Washington. The end of the relationship. Yen Suring and Elizabeth Haysom's relationship is dysfunctional from the start. It serves as a breeding ground for the plans to murder Nancy and Derek Haysom. While Haysom and Zuring are in prison awaiting trial, both undergo psychiatric evaluation. Forensic psychiatrist Dr. Henrietta Bullard, who, along with psychiatrist Dr. Hamilton, is hired by Zuring's legal team, writes a report in 1986 on Zuring's mental state in which she also describes his perspective on his relationship with Elizabeth Haysom. Zuring publishes excerpts from Bullard's report in his book, Not Guilty. Dr. Bullard writes in her report, 
quote, During the first evaluation in July 1986, he was very anxious and constantly spoke of feeling worried for Miss Haysom. He had the feeling she was the only person with whom he had ever formed a real connection, and he was unable to live without her. He believed her parents would have had the power to separate them, and more than anything else, he wanted to protect and love her. Zuring describes himself as the passive half of a folie a deux, a shared psychosis also referred to as a shared delusional disorder. He likely adopts this turn of phrase from another report that Dr. Hamilton writes about Zuring's mental state. Both Dr. Bullard and Dr. Hamilton describe Elizabeth Hazem as an individual with significant mental health problems who is able to cast a spell over a naive young man. However, it's just as easy to imagine this folie a deux working the other way around, with Zuring as the driving force behind it. Elizabeth Haysom also undergoes a psychiatric evaluation, which is actually quoted during her trial. One of the people who works on the report is Janet Warren, who will later go on to become a professor of psychiatry at the University of Virginia. Warren paints a very different picture of Haysom than Hamilton and Bullard. In her report, she writes, quote, In summary, Miss Haysom can be characterized psychiatrically as a very intelligent young adult female who suffers from an extremely poor self-image which has been nurtured most of her life. Warren diagnoses Haysom with borderline personality disorder, which, in her case, mainly takes the form of self-destructive behavior. Warren also sees Haysom's relationship with Zuring in a very different light. She writes, quote, There is a theme in Miss Haysom's relationship with Mr. Zuring, also found in her relationship with her parents, of dominance and submission. A relationship of this type is not unusual in individuals with a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. The locus of control in this type of relationship typically shifts back and forth between the parties involved, but it is apparent that after killing her parents, Mr. Soaring became the uncontested source of control in their relationship. Even after the murder of her parents, Haysom is unable to leave Zuring due to her psychological instability. In her report, Warren describes an extremely abusive relationship in which Zuring increasingly becomes the aggressor. Warren writes, while in Europe, she accepted his physical beating, his insults, and his bizarre sexual interests again, rather than separate from him. Warren comes to the following conclusion. It is doubtful that Miss Haysom actively and knowingly planned the killing of her parents or participated in the creation of an alibi prior to the offense. It is likely that Mr. Suring killed the Haysoms not as an act of love, and certainly not as Miss Haysom's command, but rather as a means of retaining control over Miss Haysom. Furthermore, Warren states that Haysom suffers from intense fear of abandonment. This is why she is unable to leave Zuring after her parents' murder. Even when, according to Elizabeth Haysom, Zuring repeatedly becomes violent with her. Terry Wright believes that Haysom began to distance herself from Zuring later. For her extradition to the United States, all the key documents of the case are compiled a few weeks after the interrogations in June 1986. The documents include photos of the crime scene, which Haysom sees for the first time. Uh, so it had all the statements 
from the various witnesses, all the evidence from America to apply for extradition. And that bundle contained some photocopies of the photographs. So she saw those and that's when she realised how horrific the injuries were. And that's, I think, when her attitude towards him started to change. In April 1987, Hasem sends Zuring one last letter in which she breaks up with him. She does not resist extradition. During her trial in the U.S. in October 1987, she takes full responsibility for her actions and pleads guilty as an accessory before the fact. She receives two 45-year prison sentences. During his trial in 1990, Zuring changes his version of what happened that night and has told this new story ever since, that he took the blame out of his love for Hasem and that she had conspired against him. But that is not Zuring's only explanation for his allegedly false testimony. He also brings his nationality into it. He claims that, as a German who was born after World War II, he wanted to keep a government from killing its citizens at any cost. The only thing that comes to mind to anybody when you think of being German is World War II and the Holocaust, okay? And that is something that's drummed into German school kids and was drummed into me. Um, the two main conclusions from that, there, was, there must never again be war from German soil. And secondly, the worst, an absolutely worst form of murder is if a government kills people in the name of its citizens, all right? Which is what execution is, all right? Well, it was, it was to, to me, if I had turned Elizabeth in, all right, and become part of the process that would lead to her execution, that to me, all right, would be myself becoming a murderer, and not just a murderer, but the worst form of murder, okay? Because that's basically exactly what happened, you know, 50 years ago in Germany. People turning other people in and the government killing them. And as a, as a German, I just simply couldn't do that. Zoring doesn't even hesitate for a second to exploit the Second World War and the Holocaust in order to paint himself as the hero. Wright, on the other hand, objects to Zoring's claim that he made a false confession in order to protect Hasem for whatever reason. One of the things that Zoring has been saying for many years is that he confessed falsely, he says, to protect Elizabeth Hasem. But in actual fact, in terms of um, the law, he didn't protect her at all. First of all, he said they discussed murder beforehand and that she was responsible for creating the alibi while he went off to see her mum and dad. So in a one sense, he protected her in terms of, like, if I asked difficult questions at any time, he would protect her in that sense. But when it comes to the actual murders, he didn't protect her at all. He dropped her right in it. And she was immediately a co-conspirator because of what he said. Zuring is behind bars. Yet he refuses to simply lie down and accept his fate. In the coming decades, he will try to prove his alleged innocence. He wants a new trial, and he is able to convince a growing number of people of his version of the events. In the U.S. and Germany, he begins to attract a group of sympathizers who are willing to help him in his efforts. In the next episode, 
one of Jens Zuring's former supporters and close confidants, offers us an exclusive look at her experiences as part of Zuring's so-called circle of friends, as well as the methods he has used to convince countless people that he is, in fact, innocent. It just seemed so incredibly unjust to me, you know, to think that someone is stuck in prison for 30 years for a crime that he allegedly didn't commit. The Zuring System, Episode 3 of 8, A Toxic Relationship. Our narrator is Karen Cifarelli. You also heard the voice talents of Sungor Ben-Turk, Celine De Janeiro, Michelle Glick, Michael S. Rozinski, and Seamus Sargent. This has been a production of Argonne Lab and CCC Cinema and Television 2022. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.